Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for our beauty and personal care webinar. We're really excited to have this conversation with Sarah, Ming, Lisa, and Keith. Uh, thank you. Thank you all for joining. Uh, I'm going to be your MC, Mike. I'm the community manager here at Manufacture.com. A little bit about us uh, before we kick things off. Manufacture helps brands source, manufacture, finance, and manage inventory all from one single dashboard. Uh, we work with 700 plus vetted vendors across 25 countries and 20 consumer categories. Beauty and personal care is one of the categories that we serve. We make the manufacturing and inventory financing process a breeze for consumer brands. And our goal is to reduce COGS while increasing inventory amounts without sacrificing quality. We provide free quotes. And if you might be interested in only the inventory financing side, you do not need to use your vendor network in order it, it, you, you don't need to use our vendor network in order to work with us. We can onboard your manufacturers onto our platform as well as assist you with orchestrating your supply chain. So with all that being said, if you're a consumer brand operator, BC, or service provider, and would be interested in learning more about our inventory financing product and or help on the manufacturing side, please let us know in this poll. We'll just give it... Um, We'll just give it a few seconds here. If you might be interested in learning more about manufactured, if you can please respond, that would be that'd be great. Perfect. On to uh, today's webinar. Really excited uh, uh, to be joined by Sarah, Ming, Lisa, and Keith. Uh, Sarah, let's start with you. Uh, uh, give us a brief introduction about uh, Cult Capital. Will do. Yeah. So my name is Sarah Wolfel. Thanks again, Mike, for for hosting this webinar today and having me on the show. I am co-founder and partner at Cult Capital. We're about nine years old. We've um, been investing in consumer product companies for nine years. We provide support and capital to early stage businesses in the consumer space, specifically consumer product companies. So we're focused on the subcategories of food, beverage, beauty, personal care, fashion, apparel, accessories, Beauty is one of our key categories, so we do spend about 50% of our time in that space. And we're typically making initial investments in companies when they are between two to 10 million of revenue and seeking a series A or a series B raise. Uh, and then we, we work side by side with founders and their management teams to help them scale Really, you know, our sweet spot is helping them scale from call it that two to 10 million of revenue to a hundred million plus of revenue. Um, so um, that is in a nutshell what we do. For reference, some of the, uh, the rounds that we've led for beauty brands in the space are um, for brands like Supergoop in the sun care space, Lawless Beauty in the clean cosmetic space, and Actinacre in the clean hair care space. So definitely love the beauty space and, and have um, some breadth of experience in earlier stage uh, beauty brands. Amazing, amazing. Thank you. Th thank you, Sarah. Um, Ming, how about, how about you? Do you mind uh, sharing us a bit about Proven? Happy to. Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks, Mike, for having me on this um, chat today. Uh, I'm Ming Zhao, the co-founder and co-CEO of Proven Skincare. We use award-winning and patented technology to create personalized skincare products that are based on 47 factors about an individual from your, um, from your style of life to your skin concerns 
to your environmental factors where you live. And what's truly unique is that not only do we um, look at those factors from when you first begin proven, but as people's lives change and evolve, we will update our understanding of what you uh, what your factors are to you so that the products are updated like software. So as people you know get pregnant or they enter menopause or a man might change the way they shave their face, we take an or just the seasons change, you know, from a winter to a summer to a fall, our products evolve with our customers, which is what led to the um, industry leading retention rates that we have. Uh, Proven was launched in 2019, um, and we've experienced tremendous growth since then. Um, and in terms of our founding journey, we came out of the Y Combinator Accelerator Program, um, as well as Stanford Startex. Uh, in fact, uh, Proven was founded by myself and my co-founder, um, wh whose name is Dr. Amy Yuan, who is a computational physicist uh, from Stanford. So that was our unique insight in the data where we first built um, the largest database in all of beauty, which combined more than 28 million consumer testimonials and reviews and data points uh, together with more than 4,000 scientific papers, basically all the scientific papers there are around skincare and beauty. And we use that and use machine learning and neural networks to understand the what people are saying that worked and what didn't. Um, and from that, we created what we call the Skin Genome Project. And we're also working on our beauty chat, beauty GPT uh, based off of that um, as more of an internal fun project. Uh, but from that is what allowed us to create personalized products and now we have two patents across the personalization category, really locking down this category um, and have also expanded into personalized fragrance. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ming, for that. Um, Lisa, uh, if you don't mind telling us a bit about Experiment. Sure. Um, so uh, Experiment is a Gen Z science-backed skincare brand at kind of the highest level. Um, we make uh, what we call futuristic skin essentials for the chemistry curious consumer. Um, all of our products are uh, clinically proven, thoughtfully sustainable, ridiculously fun. Um, we feel really strongly that kind of the future of science uh, in beauty is not the kind of black and white dropper bottle lab coat aesthetics we see from most clinical brands today. It's really one that's more fun, colorful, vibrant, and culturally relevant um, to kind of a new generation of consumers, Gen Z. Um, basically, beauty's most educated consumer, um, having grown up on the internet uh, and learning about beauty from like YouTube, Instagram, TikTok. They are like very, very sophisticated uh, skincare and beauty consumers and, um, you know, are requiring more from brands than just kind of one note um, kind of efficacy stories. They want brands that can do uh, kind of the whole thing. We call this like internally hot and smart um, brands that can both be really culturally relevant and cool, but also pack a punch in terms of efficacy and, and uh, proven products. Um, so my background is actually in chemistry. So is my co-founders. Um, I am 27, so I'm kind of a Gen Z cusper myself. Um, but I really started uh, kind of this journey with my thesis in college that, um, 
you know, was focused on something called chemophobia in the beauty industry, which means fear of chemicals um, and how that translates to marketing and the kind of the clean and natural space and how that affects consumer purchasing behavior. And from there, I kind of became obsessed with this problem of like, how do we make science cool for a new generation of consumers? Because that's what's actually going to get people to be interested in it rather than kind of the way beauty operates today, which is kind of, and it's changing a little bit, but through a series of kind of just hype trend cycles and kind of misinformation spreading online. Um, that's kind of how a lot of beauty trends start. Um, so we're really trying to kind of change that cycle and change that paradigm by making science cool for, for uh, Gen Z. So uh, we've launched about a little over a year and a half ago, but a little under a year and a half ago, April of last year. Um, and we have three products on market currently um, and uh, Avant Garde, which is our reusable sheet mask, uh, Super Saturated, which is our viral 30% glycerin serum and Buffer Jelly, which is kind of our answer to the slugging trend. It's a micro slugging facial oil. So all of those products uh, follow that same three pillars of clinically proven, thoughtfully sustainable, ridiculously fun. Um, and we formulate all of our products in-house. My co-founder is actually the formulator behind everything. So we have our own in-house lab um, and it allows us to just make really cool, unique experimental products. So uh, that's the brand to date. Amazing. Amazing. That's awesome. Awesome. Congrats, uh, Lisa, on, on, on all your success so far. Um, Keith, how about yourself? If, if you can share a bit about KT Financing. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Keith Kohler, and I help companies get the right financing at the right time. I focus on all the non-equity options. So the debt options are ones called non-dilutive. And the way I do that is through a structured call, I help uh, founders identify multi-year financing strategies and help lay out for them all the different financing options, again, on the debt side that could be available to them now and into the future, depending upon their channel mix and other items are about their company, such as their structure, their credit scores, a path to profitability, if that even exists, all those different dynamics come into play. And then I help them go get those deals. And so um, happily, I'm I'm supporting a lot of founders these days. Um, and I really love what I do. So glad to be here and glad to join all of you, Sarah, Ming, and Lisa. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Really uh, appreciate you, you being here as well. Um, if you do have questions, by the way, um, for, for those who are listening le uh, live, um, please, please, please um, um, ask them in the uh, Q&A chat, um, and I will certainly do my best to get to them. Um, and uh, we, we really want to make this as engaging and as helpful um, as possible. Uh, so, um, so yes, please, please, please ask Q&A. Don't wait for a specific moment in time. Um, ask ask your questions when they come to you. Um, so my first question, speaking of questions, my first question uh, to all of you is when you're building your own brands or you're analyzing which brands you want to invest in or, or advise um, or, or, or advising brands, how do you think about product differentiation within beauty and personal care? Um, maybe Sarah, we'll start you off with this one. Yeah, awesome. So we think about differentiation, I guess, in, in internally at Colt, we we call it USP. So um, you, you, the company's unique selling proposition, what is different about it uh, and how are they speaking to the consumer? And when we think about USP, um, we're really looking for companies that are doing something meaningful that's changing consumers' lives for the better in a way that didn't exist before. 
So we call it capital D differentiation. It's not incremental differentiation. So slightly better nutritionals or slightly better ingredients or slightly um, a slightly better packaging. We're talking about brands that are providing products that are materially different and materially better for consumers and solving problems for consumers that many times they didn't even know they had. Um, I think a great example within our portfolio of a company that had, you know, a unique selling proposition was it is still Supergoop. Um, so Supergoop, um, you know, provided skincare products or sun care products that acted like skincare products um, that were materially better than what was on the market at the time. As a result, you know, it kind of ties back to the founder's mission, Holly's mission, which was to get consumers to wear sunscreen every single day and not just episodically when they were at the beach or, um, you know, going for a, a fishing trip or something like that. She wanted uh, consumers to really wear sunscreen at, screen at all times and be protected at all times. And she knew in order to fulfill that mission, she would have to formulate products that felt really good, like your, you know, the best skincare products in your, in your, uh, in your cabinet. And so in doing that, not only did she take market share away from existing consumers in the marketplace, but she actually grew the total addressable market and the market size for sun care. And that is really what we think that truly differentiated products do. They just don't take market share away from other players. They actually grow the size of the total addressable market. No, I mean, that's a great, that's a really, really great example. I, I appreciate that. And I'm actually a super good you goop user personally so awesome to hear we love we love yeah. a good super goop user <laughs> <laughs> um ming how about how about you how do you think about this question when it comes to uh, how, how are you thinking about product differentiation um i know there's all, obviously a lot of science in your product but how are you thinking overall about product differentiation when it comes to your brand yeah i think when it comes to um a new brand especially in the consumer category differentiation is actually more important than probably anything else, including, you know, in good branding, et cetera, um, because there are so many great products to choose from now. So it really comes down to how, you know, how are you different than, uh, than what's already out there and for proven. And that just came very naturally because proven creates personalized skincare. And we're really the first to market, and to first to create a market for personalized skincare that is based on data. And to date, we're still the market leader. And now that we have two patents protecting the personalization process in all of skincare. So, you know, for us, that came pretty, the differentiation came pretty organically. Um, and it's something that we, you know, still stand behind, even as we're entering different retail partnerships, you know, we are, um, it would be much easier to, you know, to, let's say, abandon the personalization, but that is, um, you know, such a integral part of who we are, uh, and part of our differentiation, that even if it causes, you know, a little more complexity, um, it is still something that is going to be core to who we are. So the, this, um, so the differentiation being a core part of the brand, I think would be the ideal way to go about it. How a quick follow-up question for you, Ming. Since um <laughs> since your brand obviously it, you're you know the leading personalized uh skincare brand out there, um how how do you how do you think about personalization versus scale? 
because on one hand, you know, you, when I think of personalization, I think of a number of SKUs, a number of different types of products um, personalized towards people. When I think about scale. I think about the exact, you know, kind of opposite that, you know, you're trying to scale all these products. Um, how do you think about this when you think about growing your brand? That's one key reason that we are the leader in personalized skincare, because it is hard to figure out scale when it comes to personalization. And for us, how we've been able to make it work is that our brand, our entire um, uh, entire platform is also based on data. So when there's data running through the entire from uh, formulations to manufacturing to figuring out you know, what different needs will arise in the next two months or the next year, and then we can um, make manufacturing decisions and purchase order decisions based on that data, based on um, predictive analytics using, using data, that helps us to make much smarter choices um, and be able to use our capital efficiently and be able to scale up efficiently. Um, so, so data for us is the answer to that. Got it. Got it. Lisa, how, so how do you think about product differentiation when it comes to um, experiment overall? Yeah, I think the way we kind of think about it is we're, when we started the brand, we actually like had quite a bit of resistance, me and my co-founder team, in starting a beauty brand because there's a million beauty brands out there and largely most of the products are very similar. They're all, I'm sure they're all great, but I mean, how many more like hyaluronic acid serums do we really like need on the market, right? Um, so when we started the brand, um, the biggest focus was kind of looking at kind of the brand, the science brands that came before us. I call them like science uh, 1.0 brands, right? Like the ordinary or the inky list, those kinds of brands where it's a, it's a focus more so on ingredients and collection rather than a curatorial approach to um, beauty products. So um, for us, when we think about, you know, what products experiment would launch, it would be ones that um, A, like didn't exist on the market yet. Um, we had to be adding something genuinely new. Um, I think super saturated is a really great example of that. It's the first like 30% glycerin serum of its kind on the market. Like, and it's our answer to a sea of undifferentiated hyaluronic acid products on the market, right? Kind of positioning glycerin, which is kind of an OG skincare ingredient that we know works as the gold standard for hydration and making it cool through branding, marketing, et cetera, and an amazing formulation. Um, so, you know, when we look at products, it has to fill this kind of white space. Um, and moreover, and it's hard to find white space in beauty, it really is. Um, so that's not an easy thing to do. Um, but it's okay, because we kind of take that uh, curatorial approach for making one or two um, best versions of like a single thing. So we're not going to have like five hydrating serums, we're going to have this one. Um, and uh, the other piece of it is we're also looking for something that's different and experimental, not just on the product end, but also on like the branding and marketing experience. So like, you know, there's a lot of same, same in terms of visuals and beauty, um, a lot of brands that, that frankly look alike. Um, and it's really hard, not just to stand out with product, but also to stand out with brand because it's, it's really, really important in beauty that like you have a brand that resonates um, and that can stand the test of time that can kind of move fluidly with the consumer. Um, so, you know, we also sought to create a brand that, 
um, again, that we were not seeing in the market at all. Experiment has a very kind of almost unserious, wacky kind of vibe to it um, with like a futuristic twist. Um, we have a lot of guidelines internally on how we do that, but um, kind of looking at kind of the market, we're very focused on kind of just creating stuff that doesn't exist, frankly. Um, and that's, that's kind of the way we look at it. Um, yeah. No, that's, that's, that, that that's really helpful. I, I also like the fact, I also appreciate how you said that, how your products also tie into Lima differentiation into the branding, um, not that it's only branding, but there is, um, but it, but, but you think about di di differentiation in both ways, which is, which is really cool. Yeah. I um, think that's what that's sought differentiation in both directions is really important. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. Totally, totally. Keith, when as you're advising brands um, on the debt side, um, does this come across? Do you come across in terms of analyzing um, product differentiation um, on on your end, or not so much? Well, it doesn't make it doesn't come up so much in a um, credit decision, except in longer cycle type of uh, debt financing that people might be getting. So, if if people are getting bank loans, conventional loans, or lines of credit or they're getting SBA loans, which take longer to get, you're going to see a greater amount of underwriting. So this discussion here with everyone about product differentiation, um, your, how your product line stands out, et cetera, that becomes a bigger part of what's called an underwriting package, right? They want to get to know your business and understand how you've been successful to date, how you will be successful in the future. So it does play a role because it is the obligation of the banks and these, these types of institutions to really know their customer and have a good understanding of the fundamentals of their business. On the other hand, uh, the more quick financing providers, the fintechs out there, the ones you see online, the ones that you press the button and the money shows up in your account tomorrow, they're going to care a lot less about that. They're not going to do that type of underwriting. They're going to be more focused on the financing metrics because often they're connecting to your QuickBooks or other accounting software and you, using algorithms not necessarily traditional underwriting techniques to determine if they're going to um, support you with financing. So I'd say, again, longer term cycle, yes. Shorter cycle, rarely. Cool. Okay. And in, in terms of making your decisions when it comes to um, <clears throat> advising brands in terms of on, on the debt side of things, does um, do you think about product differentiation when you, when you start talking to brands? Depends on what they're trying to achieve. So if they're, if they have a good sense of their specific cash requirements, what they need money for, and at what time they need it, and I direct them towards the longer term cycle, yeah, I'll spend more time mm. getting to know them on a deeper level. If they need something very quick, they're just asking me to help them really with a transaction, not necessarily a transformation, then I might be less preoccupied with that and just helping them get exactly what they need. Okay. No, 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 that's helpful. That's helpful. And I appreciate you kind of spilling out the two different kind of um, uh, different parts to it um, on the, if, if it's short term that they're looking for or, 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 or whether it's long term um, and that helps you, you make your, you make your decisions um, in this, in this current market, how are you all thinking about um, finance um about how to finance the growth for your businesses or businesses that you might advise. Um, um, obviously, the market's tightened um, uh, compared to the last couple of years. Um, when does when does debt make sense? When does when does using cash make sense? Um, when does it make sense, for example, to like raise a round of equity? Um, would like would would love to kind of hear your thoughts on this. Um, maybe um, maybe Sarah, we'll start with you again. 
Yeah, there are so many different things that go into how and and when to raise capital. Um, kind of on a more like general basis, um, you know, when we think about whether you're you're raising more of a debt facility or doing a rounds of equity, we think of a debt facility as something that really funds working capital needs. So it's more of like a short term. Um, you know, maybe you need to to you know shorten the cycle between AR and AP. Um, so you're really you're taking out a facility to kind of facilitate that cash flow. Um, when you think about equity financing, you know it's really more when um, a you're kind of open to a strategic partner to bring on and help support the growth of the company and kind of have um, have a voice in the strategy and kind of the go forward plan. And then B, when it, it's when you're looking to scale things um, that fall in operating expenses like team, marketing spend, and thinking about, you know, expanding distribution channels. Maybe you're, as a beauty brand, you're direct to consumer, but you want to expand into Sephora or vice versa. And it requires a, a bit of more of a lift on the capital side. Um, so that's kind of how we think about when's the right time to raise debt versus equity. And then in terms of, you know, when's the right time, um, generally, you know, I think obviously it's optimal to, to raise from a position of strength. Um, so it's really when, you know, you're exhibiting kind of revenue growth month over month, year over year, um, a lot of your KPIs are strong, whether that's, you know, revenue, monthly revenue by, by retailer, or monthly revenue by SKU or direct to consumer unit economics. You want to raise when all of those things are strong and, and really showing upward trends. Um, and then there's always the practicality of you need to raise when you need cash. Um, so that's, um, that's really what we think about and I guess our advice to people is when you do go out and raise to have very specific thoughts around why you're raising and what the cash <laughs> is being used for and kind of how that rolls into a go forward plan we say to companies when they're thinking about raising it should be to fund an 18 to 24 month timeline um, and you want to be able to show over that time period obviously it takes some time to make the investments with the capital you're raising but then you also want to show, you know, growth from those investments before you go out and raise again. Um, so those, I guess, would be the high notes of of how we think about capital raising. No, I I appreciate that. When when does it make sense to use debt? When does it make sense to use equity? Because I I even see, for example, on uh, some uh, some pitches that I see from from founders that they might use some of the equity money to um uh for you know inventory uh to, to finance their inventory or to or or their marketing um well particularly inventory where maybe that actually could be used better um to use maybe a, a debt facility all, although it uh, of course it all is also dependent on the rate and as well as how of that course. money will will say out to her. so um there are there are certainly nuances here but um but it's it but 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 that's a great point, Sarah. How about how about Lisa? How are you thinking about um, this question relating to uh, experiment? Yeah, I mean, I'd honestly just echo what Sarah had said. Um, you know, for us, like we've only ever taken on debt when it makes sense for inventory financing completely. Mm. Um, and we've actually went to our investors to get that debt, um, and that we actually get really favorable rates that way too. Um, so I think that's that's something we've done in the past, um, and. 
Yeah, I mean, for for fundraising, absolutely. We raised our pre-seed um, when we were kind of pre-launch, but we had actually bootstrapped kind of a test of the brand prior so that we could go to investors with data. So we we did kind of a first version of our reusable sheet mask that we had um, launched on our own with our own savings through social media channels. We didn't like invest in marketing or anything. It was really just like very much like the sweat equity piece of it all. Um, and once we sold out of that inventory and we realized, cool, like we have a bigger idea for this brand. This brand we think can actually be a, a VC backable brand. Um, and that was really important to qualify too. Um, is that like, is this a brand that we want VC money behind? Um, I think there's sometimes among founders, this like pressure to like just raise VC funding without really thinking about it. Um, and it's something you should really... <laughs> think deeply about um, because it is very different. You do have a partner involved. Um, so uh, once we figured that piece out, we had kind of our metrics together and we had that case study basically of that soft launch that we did, that we bootstrapped, and then we could go and, and get that financing. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, similarly as we're in the market now, like we we think through, okay, like our our, um, our metrics really, really strong. Um, is the iron hot basically is what I've kind of been asking myself. And if it is, okay, it might be the right time to go out to raise. No, that's a great, that that's a great, great, great point. Um, and Ming, how do you think about this question as well? Since um, anything about um, uh, capital allocations, I know you've, you've raised some rounds of equity. How do you think about using equity versus, versus debt and kind of, and, and certainly in this market? You know, consumer brands cost a lot of money as uh, you know, Lisa and I'm sure Sarah would, would, and Keith would tell you, so, you know, especially earlier on, um, there are usually very few debt options available to a founder earlier on, you know, before proof points. So um, when you're launching, um, you usually have no option other than to raise, um, raise equity. Uh, and it takes, you know, typically a lot of, uh, a lot of preparations, a lot of sweat and, uh, and time. Um, but I think the way that, you know, Lisa mentioned, which is to first get some proof points before going out to market and trying to do that at the most opportune time all makes a lot of sense. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, to get the company started, you know, funding is fuel and you need a fuel to build this fire. So, um, you know, regardless of how favorable, you know, your, 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 um, your numbers are. Um, you just have to do it. So that might just mean that you might have to do a lot more, you know, conversations than others, but it's just a necessary step in getting everything started. So, um, you know, all the checks of, do you have everything it takes? Well, you, you don't necessarily know until you go to market. So all you can do is go, go out there, spend the time and have, you know, the hundreds of conversations you might take to get that initial round going. Yeah, that that's a really great point, especially about how when you're very early on, you might not have you know um, access to the, to the debt markets or debt facilities. So, um, so, so you might have to start um, with using cash, whether it's your own or 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 whether it's equity money that that you raise them externally. Keith, how do you think about this? What I'd like to do, Mike, is um, expand upon some of the things that were already said because I thought there were some really cool points that were brought up. Uh, Lisa, what I liked about what you said is about the private sources from. Uh, your current equity investors providing you debt financing. For everyone out there, I'm seeing a lot more of that going on. So, <clears throat> and I think I would encourage all of you to have an understanding if you have uh, investors, whether friends and family, angel investors or institutions, understand could they be open to doing 
a one-off debt structure for you, either as a bridge round until you get to the next round of equity. That could be like a revenue-based financing type of structure. It could be a limited term uh, promissory note, something like that. Um, I'm finding that there's creativity coming up on helping founders, particularly because even debt capital has dried up to some degree, uh, particularly in the fintech space. There's a huge introduction of fintech companies in the consumer space, particularly in 2018, 2019, et cetera. Probably all of you know those names because they show up in your inbox a lot, even today, but they've pulled back significantly. The traditional ABL providers is providing um, money in the um, wholesale space against receivables and inventory. They've raised their minimums from what used to be uh, easier, uh, earlier entry points to later stage entry points. Same with FinTech, even ones that are helping um, mainly with inventory financing, particularly for brands that are growing their business principally online, they've raised their minimum. So it's resulting in a lot more creativity having to come forward, particularly from those who are already investors in the company. Um, so again, uh, what Ming said, yeah, all of that makes it such that for you very early stage companies out there, most of you are going to be relying on equity quite a bit longer. Hopefully, if the economy continues to improve, and that's what we all want, maybe some of those who used to occupy the earlier stage will come back and perhaps be there to help them out. I will say this, um, someplace you might not necessarily look, but could help all of you out there, particularly on the early stage, might be state programs, might be programs for women and minority-owned businesses, BIPOC founders. Those, If you want to Google women-owned business, California, et cetera, loan programs, that's how I'd encourage you to look. There are things out there that are not well advertised, and yet that are helping, particularly those in the early stage. <clears throat> Going back to what Sarah said, too, uh, I thought you summarized it perfectly, Sarah, about why you use equity and why you use debt. I kind of think of it in, in a kind of terse way sometimes, like debt helps you move along the curve of growth that you've already planned for yourself. Equity shifts it up and out. So for those big, big, big growth initiatives, that's what you want to be using equity for. Debt for you uh, executing according to plan. And finally, just the importance, again, echoing what everyone said about really understanding your cash requirements thoughtfully uh, into the future and exactly how you're going to use those proceeds. Certainly, Sarah and others in the equity space are going to give you a greater level of diligence and scrutiny about how you're doing that and how you're thinking about it. But again, even in the debt side, a little bit less, but still they're interested in learning. So just some random thoughts based on what everyone has contributed so far. Appreciate appreciate that, Keith. And I mean, and on the topic of growth, since I know that this is uh, part of what we're all um, um, why we had this webinar um, about growing uh, beauty and personal care brands. How do you think about how, how do each of you think about uh, new um, new sales channels? And like, if you and analyzing if you should, for example, head into a new retailer and introduce a new a, a new distribution channel into your business. Um, maybe Ming, we can stop, start this off with you. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Proven had recently entered Sephora, which is very exciting for us. Um, you know, that took, um, you know, some time, almost a year of, of discussions between the parties, um, a lot of planning on both of our teams. Um, 
and you know evaluation of what the right partner would be uh you know throughout this journey um and i think in terms of determining a new channel right it doesn't have to be a new retail channel it could just be entering international or it could be um, you know, adding a, a channel mix in your marketing mix. Um, regardless, I, I think um, it's it's helpful to um, to have a test and learn approach. And this is even something that we're doing uh, with our new uh, retail partner, whereby, you know, um, instead of entering, let's say, all the doors or, you know, putting a big portion of spend against a new marketing channel, what is a way to um, put a small amount of spend behind something, test and learn for, you know, three months, six months to, to understand, is, is it the right fit? Uh, because I think, you know, it's all is easy when, um, you know, you hear examples of other brands that have, you know, exploded on this, um, you know, new channel, a new partner, or new country or whatnot. Um, but a lot of that might not apply to your company. So we really have to see what fits. Um, and you you might not, you know, you might not uh, know until you try. This is another thing, right? It's like, it, even if you have very similar customers as another company, uh, you really never know if it's a good fit for your own customers until you uh, you try something out. You know, this is something that we're continuously learning um, uh, about our, you know, for ourselves too, right? You know, do we launch a new product? Do we use the, this copy versus another? Do we have this sustainability initiative versus another? Or this, um, you know, um, we almost always go back to our customer base, uh, do survey work, do discussion work before we make any big leaps because we really learned a hard way that what we think we know about our, ourselves, about our company, about our customers might not be actually what uh, what is reality. No, that's a great, I mean, those are great points. Um, great points because you, you, you have to balance as well, you know, that growth or, or, or what that growth could be in the retailer um, uh, with also, you know, what profitability is as well too, or or if that you know retail channel will be will, uh will be uh, a uh, profitable profitable channel in the future, and you don't know that unless you actually try and you actually experience it. Um, I, I yeah, I think especially for companies where you know we're talking about trying to be very prudent about our spending, you know, about uh, the market yeah. being the way that it is, right? If you know if we were in this, you know, in uh, let's say the market of three years ago, and we all knew that we had, you know, um, endless uh, fundraising backing, then maybe that the answer is different, right? You can throw throw money at everything. But now it's, this is not a time to do that. Um, and I, I, I think most people are not trying to build companies where, you know, we just, you know, throw money at things. So, so this is a time to be prudent. And the best way to do that is to test small and learn. So how, how do you think about this question, Lisa, um, when it comes to testing small, uh, testing small learning uh, versus, you know, or, or, you know, heading to a new, new retail or, or, or sales channel. Yeah, I think the story of experiment has almost been like a very conservative approach to that, honestly, um, both on like, you know, where we decide to sell, but also kind of what Ming had mentioned, kind of the marketing mix too, of like entering a new social media channel. Should you be on TikTok shop? Like, you know, all of these things, there's so many things that get thrown at you um in, in like you know live shopping and like all all of these different things that everyone's like you should be on this and I'm like but should we um and it, it all sounds like a great idea but at the end of the day bandwidth is one of our biggest considerations at this stage of the business because a I feel really really strongly if we're going to be in a new channel we should be doing it right that doesn't mean you can't test that doesn't mean you can't exist on that platform and learn I think threads um was a good moment uh for brands to kind of 
you know, mess around and find out, right? Um, in in terms of like, you know, how threads we ran like a test sale on threads. And I was literally on threads for like 48 hours, like tweeting out nonsense most of the time from the brand account. But it was funny and it was a fun, engaging moment for for our customers. But um, I think bandwidth is the biggest consideration. We are majority D2C and we are on Urban Outfitters, um, but each and every distribution channel you enter is another thing you have to manage. And our goal is to manage it well, right? So we want to do that well. D to C wise, I mean, we we actually don't do paid marketing. We've been really uh, fortunate to be able to kind of grow organically. Um, and that is majority through Instagram and TikTok. Um, as two channels, our main channels, we don't really stray outside of those. Um, and, uh, you know, just pretty much all D to C. So, um, you know, that works early on for sure. And and right now the we have like two full-time employees, me and my co-founder, and then kind of a, an army of other people helping us. But at the end of the day, like the bandwidth is the tightest piece of that. Um, and for our brand not to be diluted or stretched too thin, you want to be just really careful about where you kind of place the brand. Um, I've seen a lot of um, my friends, honestly, who um, kind of stretch themselves too thin, trying to get distribution everywhere because everyone is like, distribution is the number one thing you should be considering, but you should consider that at the right time. Um, and that's usually when you have either the right amount of money, bandwidth, the right partner. There's a lot of things to consider, but um, yeah, I would just urge uh, most consumer brands. And again, every brand will have a different kind of experience to be a bit more conservative and thoughtful about, um, their approach to a, like social media or like a selling channel, um, like live shopping. Like if you want to see real results from it, you're going to have to put in legwork. Um, and if you don't have the bandwidth to put in that legwork, well, you're not going to get like good information out of it. So that's kind of the approach that we take. No, I, I appreciate that, Lisa. That that makes a, a ton of sense. How about you, Sarah? How are you thinking about this question when it comes to distribution and new new distribution channels, especially in this age where it seems like a lot of the a, a lot of, of what's being preached is prioritize profitability over growth. How do you think about these these kind of uh, conflicting things? Yeah, so I think when we talk about expanding distribution with our with our partner companies. Um, it's really important to think through why are we expanding distribution? Is it because we want to reach more of the same customer that we already have? Is it that we are trying to expand to a different type of customer? Is it because we want to drive brand awareness? And that dr drives a lot of the decision making that falls out um, from thinking about a re retail partner and how to support a new retail partner. Um, so answering the why is really important. I think in the case where, you know, you're trying to really expand distribution and, um, you know, let's take, you know, we're, we're talking about the beauty space. So, um, you know, in terms of retailers that drive the biggest volume, it's Sephora and Ulta. Those are the two, the two, you know, physical brick and mortar retailers. They also have a dot-com presence that drive the most the most volume in the beauty space. Um, I think when thinking through something like that, you want a real partner. So in the same way, when we talk about taking on an, an equity partner, you want to have a strong partnership 
someone who's aligned around what the brand vision and the brand principles are, um, and someone who shares your vision for growth and understands your vision for growth. So that I think that's another important thing to think through when talking to potential retailers um, that you may want to expand to. Um, and then, you know, I think in terms of what does it actually take to succeed in retail, there's the question of capital. So what is the initial PO going to be? What does that look like? How quickly um, does the retailer want to, to expand you? How quickly do you want to expand? We've seen a lot of success in the start smaller and kind of grow gradually over time. I think that's how most of our brands have grown most organically in a place like Sephora. Um, and then you have to think through the tactical pieces of how are you going to support this retailer? I think especially, you know, again, we're, we're partnering with brands when they're two to 10 million of revenue. They don't have the brand awareness that some of the much larger brands have. So it's really about generating demand within these retailers rather than having that demand pull from the brand awareness. So you really need to kind of have the basics set in terms of a team to really push sales within those retailers, um, sales support inside the stores, a, a, a really robust sampling program. Does the packaging work in retail? Does it draw the consumer's eye toward it? So really thinking about all the different facets of the retail experience um, and having the right levers in place to drive sales in a meaningful way. No, that makes that makes a ton of sense. You, if you get an offer to go into a retail sandal or or, or or you're able to, um, you have to understand and kind of assess um, if you actually can, if you actually have the bandwidth, that you actually can invest in that to make it successful, um, exactly. or or to give it a fair shot to be um, to be successful. Right. Um, the worst is you try and fail. <laughs> yeah. The best yeah. is you're not ready and you wait. As you to your point, Lisa, um, and kind yeah. of roll out slowly over time. Yeah. Another one other thing that you had mentioned about like demand and brand awareness, like that's another dimension of it. Like one of the philosophies I have with like marketing, especially, and just, you know, consumer demand is like, I almost like to wait sometimes till our consumer is like deeply asking for it, like constantly, like you can't get away from it. Um, I think a good example of that is a community. Um, so like, you know, a lot there's, you'll get pitched a lot, um, especially as a consumer brand founder, like, you know, oh, use this community platform or, or this one. And there's a lot of loyalty programs that are kind of launching. And, and it's always like, how do you assess those? But for us, like, we don't want to create like an offline or off Instagram, off TikTok community, unless there's a real desire for it. There's a demand, right? Like people are going to come themselves. And that's the same with kind of how we think about retail too. Like, do we have enough eyeballs or brand awareness to kind of make it easier to drive sales in that retailer in that particular location because if we don't it's going to be a lot more legwork to get the job done so um we always just kind of look at it through that like demand lens through like marketing and distribution yeah no i i appreciate that um keith what are your thoughts on this i'll just add a quick comment or two one thing um i've been blessed to speak to hundreds and hundreds of founders over the years. And one thing I, I'm observing in this area is pre-pandemic, the marketing budgets as a percentage of revenue were quite significant. And I saw a lot more boldness in, dare I say, throwing it out there and kind of seeing what happens. Now, post-pandemic and during pandemic, marketing as a percentage of revenue, a lot smaller. Uh, we know that founders face 
uphill challenges on even just understanding the effectiveness of the dollars they put out there, right? Particularly in the online space with the changes in Facebook and other algorithms, which it was a terrific channel in the beginning, and then it seemed to just get harder and harder to um, even measure effectiveness or even find a way to get it. So I'm, I find this challenge, believe it or not, for the marketing challenge for founders as or even sometimes more difficult than the financing challenge because of such amazing fragmentation. You know, Lisa, you said it, right? All these options keep showing up and where do you choose to deploy your dollars? And um, Sarah, I think what you said is important too, and all of you have echoed this, is the importance of, I, I'm seeing all of the founders I talk to go in very small bites, not going crazy, trying hard to just uh, get some level of effectiveness or measured results so that they don't blow the bank. And the other consideration of that too is the huge shift in the management to profitability led by <clears throat> the venture capital companies and private equity firms and other equity providers who, again, have not been as available generally. So founders are like, well, I have no but no choice to go this route to manage to profitability. So that consideration also meant that of all the places that had to be scrutinized the most marketing and all your staffing and costs of W21099 and consultants and advisors. So got it. Um yeah, uh, appreciate you you talking about that that market shift. Um it's been quite quite the shift over the past few years. Um we've been having a few questions here. Um so want to get to the audience questions. Um what KPIs are most important to focus on when evaluating taking on equity. I'm not sure I quite understand that. Um, I can I can oh, take wait, a wait, stab wait. at that. All right, go for it. Um, I I feel like the cape the key KPI in deciding whether you should take um equity versus um debt or versus or maybe the question is more VC um VC funded versus more bootstrapped. Um, I think it really depends on you. You know, what kind of business are you trying to build? Um, and are is this a business you're trying to build, let's say, for you know, the next 20 years of your life? Um uh what what time frame are you building on? And um, you know, coming out of YC, I think there's a little bit of a um a little bit of um in Silicon Valley, there's a little bit of a prejudice against um, you know, slower build, bootstrap. Uh, but now that I personally don't live in Silicon Valley anymore, but uh, I'm in the midst of you know just normal businesses among you know normal people, I think it's actually a beautiful way of building a business to build it slowly, to build it the way you've always wanted to be, rather than you know have um, people that may maybe know better, but they don't, they'll certainly tell you they know better to build it the way that you know they they think the business should be built. You know, I personally am building a venture backed company, um, but I really think that a lot of the um, the, the recent, I think, prejudice against um, building a bootstrap, slower, um, what is negatively called a lifestyle business, even though, you know, building no business is really a lifestyle choice, um, uh, is, is uncalled for. So I think it I think it's, it would be good for a founder to think for themselves and say, what am I better suited for? And maybe maybe you are suited well suited for, a you know, a fast um breaking things kind of venture back business. But I think asking yourself those questions and what what it is that you're wanting out of this journey is is really the only real KPI. I can't echo that honestly enough. Um I am so glad that we had the opportunity to like 
bootstrap it initially because we had no intention of raising venture. The only reason we chose that is because we saw a, a really strong signal in the noise, but B, we realized, oh, we just want to make a skincare brand too. Like we had a much bigger vision for the brand itself that required venture capital for us to get there in a time frame that we wanted, right? Could we have built that brand over 10 years, 15 years? Absolutely. But we felt like the time is now to kind of create the the future science brand for a new consumer. And we need venture capital money to do that in the time frame that we want to achieve that, that we think it's important to achieve it in. Um, so that is like, it really is about you, what you want to build. And there really is like no issue whatsoever with like, you know, bootstrapping that until either you change your mind um, and there is like a strong reason to raise venture or you don't and you build an awesome business that you own 100% of. Isn't that nice? Um, so, you know, I think that I, I totally agree. There used to be this kind of like weird, um, you know, negative view of like, you know, lifestyle businesses. But frankly, like I have a lot of friends who are very happy building that. Um, and I'm like, you know, I, I love our investors. I'm glad we raised venture. But like there are some days where you're just like, oh, that seems kind of nice. So <laughs> it really is about you. That's that's really well said. Really well said. That really just depends what you um uh what you want. Uh, there's a brilliant book I I enjoy. And again, it, maybe it simplifies this a little bit, but it just in terms of who you are, it's rich versus king. And it's a bit about um, do you king meaning like do you want to own you know um, um, the business um, rich do you want to make it into a you know huge business where you don't where you own a small portion of it um, but it is a bit is a big business but that I feel like that's a pretty great book just to to kind of see where you where you kind of lie um, on that kind of spectrum I do think that's that's pretty helpful um, Sarah and Keith I don't know if you also if either of you also have 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 thoughts on this uh, topic as well. No, I don't think that. I mean, when you, when you, again, are taking on equity, you're taking on a partner. So there is another voice in the room. Um, so I think that's important to remember is that you're taking on a lifelong partner, like that, you know, we stick around if we're not going anywhere. Um, and, um, and I think that, you know, in order, I don't know, exactly where you know the KPI for the question was coming from but I guess to give some, a flavor of what we look for when we're looking at different companies um, we're looking for revenue momentum across the brand 70% plus revenue momentum year over year and we want that momentum to sustain you know going forward industry standard gross margin profile um, the beginnings of an A plus team that you're, you know, ready to and willing to build out a strong senior executive bench that has um, industry experience, um, and uh, and looking for a really strong growth plan that's been well thought out. And they're going back to the point about proof points. There have been proof points historically that kind of tie to how you're going to achieve that future future growth. Um, so those are really like the key areas that we focus on when we're considering making an investment in a company. And of, of course, the founder and alignment with the founder and an understanding and alignment around the vision is is the most critical thing. Totally, totally. Keith, Keith, if you have I could just add the quick comment to everything. Uh, um, capital efficiency comes up a lot now more than ever. It's a phrase probably we weren't even discussing a few years ago. 
but certainly in the venture community, we're hearing it more and more about making sure that every dollar that's given to them is spent wisely. Um, Pre-pandemic, again, we saw a lot just dollars were put out in the marketplace, not knowing necessarily if they were going to get a result or not, but <clears throat> focus on capital efficiency. And I really appreciate what Ming and Lisa contributed about these larger mindset issues, really. you know, What, what is it you want for yourself in your business uh, beyond the financial metrics that um, others might be focused on? So I really appreciate them bringing that to this forum. So totally, totally. I have if you're able to spare a few more minutes, I have one more, one more question here that I thought was that was was interesting. Uh, uh, I think this is probably more directed towards the founders, uh, uh, Ming and Lisa. But um, do you see a gap in equipment, uh, equipment uh, capability, infrastructure, co-manufacturers' ability to produce new, innovative products? Has that been ever an, an issue on the on, on the manufacturing side? Um, I mean, on our end, uh, we formulate in-house for a reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not just because my co-founder and I have chemistry backgrounds, like that's cool, but there are plenty of founders I know who have chemistry backgrounds that don't necessarily uh, formulate in-house, but you'll often find is that they do um, because, uh, and, and my co-founder, by the way, like used to work at kind of a, a manufacturer, kind of as a formulation chemist, making products as an R in an R&D house, like making products um, based on briefs from other brands. And um, what we've just found over time is that, um, you know, the way products are made is typically through a marketing brief um, that is given to a chemist who doesn't really have kind of uh, a say in, in what that product ultimately becomes because they're hired to, to make it. But also um, there are kind of these unspoken rules um, in R&D houses around what they think brands want because that's kind of the typical pattern, right, that they see. Um, so they might formulate to a specific ingredient standard regardless of what the request was, or they might um you know formulate in just certain ways and in, in styles um just like you know any kind of profession might have like a different type of like style like a cook right might cook different things like chemists also have some kind of flavors like that um but we formulate in house so that we're able to kind of get really i guess nitty gritty in terms of like how we create products and create something really different um it, it gives us a lot more visibility on the process we can manage our margins a lot better actually because um, a lot of r d houses might not give you certain information about the product until you kind of uh, go through the project so you just have way more visibility um, when you formulate in-house and you can actually create stuff that's really different i think um one of the things that uh, we, you know, think about is like with our 30% glycerin serum, kind of the unspoken rule in cosmetic chemistry is don't use glycerin above 10% because it gets really sticky and consumers don't want that. So it's like this notion they're, they're making a couple of leaps of assumptions, um, in, in the choices that they make around what consumers want. Um, and so we found that it, it, we actually can get better, more interesting products if we formulate in-house and, and, Obviously, like, I wouldn't suggest that for everyone, frankly. Like, the reason we can do that is because my co-founder is, like, nearly a decade of formulation experience in the cosmetic industry, not because, like, you know, of anything else. So, um, you know, I, I think that's why we we have kind of vertically integrated in that one area um, so that we can, you know, create more unique and different products, and then we tech transfer them out 
um, to our manufacturer. No, that's really, really interesting. Ming, if you have any thoughts too. Uh, yeah, so Proven also um, formulates our products in-house. Uh, one of our team members was the head of dermatology at Stanford University. Another one is a um, molecular chemist and cosmetic formulator also from Stanford. So, um, in you know, when we were making our products, it was... Um, uh, the the initial batch took uh, many months of formulation together, uh, but from there, the scale up from formulation to a scaled manufacturing, that actually took a lot of thinking on our own part in terms of how we could scale that up with um, uh, formulation labs. So, um, so to their question, um, it might take tweaking, but you probably should do most of the thinking in terms of how best to tweak your um, your system so that you can get the scale, so that you can get the pricing advantages, um, so that you can get you know the ability to build a real business with a partner. You know, um, obviously innovation is important, and you know as we talk, all talked about, differentiation is important, which means that what you're bringing to market will have different elements that might not fit into you know the one of the modular pieces. Uh, but it's really on you to make sure that um, you know you can you can make it fit in some ways because there are advantages to being able to take advantage um, to to being able to work with some of the partners that are out there who have the, you know, FDA uh, registrations and the, um, uh, the the good manufacturings that are already out there. I don't think you want to be inventing everything in the, in the chain uh, starting out. No, that's a, that's a great point. Great point. Um, excellent point. Um, well, all, all of you, I know that we're over time, but thank you all so much for, um, for joining us today and, and being our panelists. Thank, Thank you. you. Somebody had a very urgent question about uh, hiring the C-suite. I'll oh. just say in two seconds. Um, so I hired my um, C-suite mostly actually from my network. Um, had a lot of just, you know, random lunches with people that are in the industry. Didn't, you know, wasn't really trying to poach them or anything, but some of them actually became our early team members and now uh, C-suite members. So I, I think especially earlier stage, it is better if you can stick to your network. If you don't have a big network in that industry, try to expand it, try to meet more people. I think that, um, you know, that would be the easier way to get started with hiring a C-suite. Yeah, that's a great, that, that's a great point. Does anyone else have, have any thoughts or, or comments on, on hiring? Well, thank well, thank you all so much for um uh for, for joining me here today. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank Thanks, everyone. You. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye.